and welcome to Risk Chats with the Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we speak with Tom Stanton about Goldman Sachs' strategic risk, how they navigated through the financial crisis a few years ago, and of course, we'll discuss how this applies to the federal government and why ERM managers should consider strategic risk. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm happy to have with us here Tom Stanton. Hello, Tom. How are you? Hey, I'm fine. Thank you very much, Paul. All right, Tom. Well, we want to talk today about strategic risk, and you okay. have some very interesting examples for us. Um, I think we're starting with sort of a private sector world, and we'll talk a little bit more about government. Good. But uh, why don't we start with yourself, Tom? Uh, give us your background in, uh, in ERM and a firm. Um, I'm a former president of a firm and have studied ERM from the days of the financial crisis. I was the point person on governance and risk management for the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission and afterwards wrote a book looking at 12 firms, four of which navigated the crisis and eight of which either needed a bailout or failed. And uh, what I found was, and we didn't really use the word ERM back then, but what I found was that the successful firms each used a variation of enterprise risk management. And from there, I came back to what I usually do, which is working with government agencies, Mm -hmm. and joined a firm, and that's where we're at. Here we are. Well, great. Why don't we talk a little bit, uh, why don't we just define some terms here? What what would you consider strategic risk, and uh, would you agree this is one of the highest priority business risks? Strategic risk is really important. We pay attention to a lot of short-term risks. Strategic risk is the kind of risk that can threaten your business approach, the way you're trying to do things. And today, of course, with technology, just think of the taxi cab industry and what technology has done to that industry, devastated it. And the whole point of strategic risk as part of ERM is to really be able to look forward and anticipate those risks and figure out what to do with them before you get hammered. Absolutely. So and and so this is true of obviously a private company trying to make revenue, earnings and all that. How about the government itself? The government <laughs> the government can have uh, strategic risk big time. Just think of the post office right. and the way the internet has absolutely drained first-class mail, which is the way the post office was largely paying for itself. And they never quite have adapted to a new strategy, a new business approach. Here's who we are. Um, They haven't quite figured it out yet, um, and they're still struggling. Right, absolutely. Well, I think it'd be great if you could just give us a little bit of background. I know you did some work in um, some private sector uh, uh, examples of, of strategic risk failures or successes, I guess we could say. So why don't we uh, give us an example from uh, some of the work you did? Well, the the classic uh, strategic area uh, was the financial crisis, where we were sitting on top of a bubble and the smart firms understood that housing prices weren't always going to go up. And so they were preparing for the change in strategy that's needed if house prices are going down instead of up. Um, the classic there was J.P. Morgan Chase, where they and again sensitivity to what's going on in the in the external environment is really critical, and they 
perceived that their delinquencies were going way up mm -hmm. compared to what they expected. So immediately this went up to the management team of J.P. Morgan Chase, which means the top of a very big institution. And they had a food fight. What's going on here? Are our delinquencies higher or lower than our competitors? Well, the answer came back, our delinquencies are lower than our competitors. If it had been higher, you'd know what to do. It's an internal problem. Mm -hmm. You better not buy such bad mortgages after this. But it was lower, so that meant something's going wrong in the market. We don't know what it is, but we're shedding our exposure to subprime. So that's a classic example of the way a well-run company um, can deal uh, with strategic risk. Right, so these companies were already, enter, you know, they're, they're already utilizing risk management or enterprise risk management, especially the financial firms, obviously, right? Some oh. yes and some no. Okay. I mean, Lehman Brothers was the opposite example mm -hmm. where prices were weakening and you had a very powerful CEO uh, who's the kind of guy who gave arrogance a bad name and wasn't going to listen to feedback. He simply sidelined his chief risk officer, mm -hmm. okay. uh, and said prices are weakening, this is a real opportunity, and plunged in and drove Lehman off a cliff. Wow, right, so yeah, some survived and well, many did not. Um, and I'm curious about, so I think you have a good story about Goldman Sachs um, and some of their risk management culture and how that changed over the years. Do you mind, give us a little? Well, Goldman was one of the firms that successfully navigated the crisis. And we interviewed people at Goldman from the CEO, the COO, Gary Cohn, who's later in the White House, um, on down uh, the chief risk officer, chief financial officer, and so forth. And what happened at Goldman was the head of the mortgage desk, whom we also interviewed, saw that they were losing money for 10 days when their very sophisticated technologies and algorithms said they should have made money. Immediately, the bad news went to the top. And immediately people came down, looked over this guy's shoulder. He said, you know, how do you do this? What does that mean? What does that mean? And the report went back to the management team. And what they did there, unlike uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, they're an investment bank, they hedged. And so they came, as our CFO told us, um, closer to home and simply hedge their exposure uh, so that they navigated the crisis quite well. We were totally impressed because Goldman developed a series of controllers that would look over the trader's shoulders and mark their positions to market every night. Right. So it was a very serious thing. Now, let me give a little history about Goldman because we'll talk about the, uh, some more recent developments. A Goldman had been a partnership. When you're a partnership and somebody screws up, you can lose your house, you can lose right. everything. Right. So partners would always look over each other's shoulders. So it built in a culture of what Goldman called, we're long-term greedy. Okay. And, and so that's what led um, to, to the, the Goldman we saw. Mm -hmm. Now Goldman changed from partnership to a shareholder-owned company. Mm -hmm. And that reduced the incentives to be careful about risk. When we interviewed Goldman, they were in the midst of that. They said, we can have it both ways. Mm -hmm. We can keep our fine culture, and we can also expand our capital base. Right. It's not at all clear that Goldman was able to do it. And now we get into the area of strategic risk. Um, Goldman, in order to escape 
any problems in the financial crisis, even though they've been very successful, they and Morgan Stanley became bank holding companies in order to get the backing of the Fed. Right. Being a bank holding company changed Goldman's profile dramatically. As a bank holding company, you're not nearly as nimble as when you're out there virtually unregulated as an investment sure. bank. Uh, and it also increased uh, capital requirements and other things. So Goldman became a different kind of institution. So they're in the midst, talk about strategic risk, of a changing strategic environment that requires a new way of thinking about things. Right, absolutely. So, you know, what are some things maybe in the last few years that kind of demonstrate, you know, the risk that, I guess this change in culture and, and what the consequences of that? Well, uh, <laughs> around 2012, 2013, Goldman floated $6.5 billion worth of debt for a Malaysian development fund. Unfortunately, the development fund seems to have been corrupt from top to bottom, and billions of dollars were siphoned off into corrupt areas, including the Malaysian political system. Hmm. Goldman, as someone who floated billions of dollars of debt for this company, was basically giving this company a lot of resources that could be squandered in really bad ways. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason companies do due diligence. And my concern about Goldman, and, and I wanna talk later about theories of, of uh, managing strategic risk. My concern about Goldman was there were a number of warning flags. Mm. Parts of Goldman had flagged one of the key players in this Malaysian development fund, although it's not totally clear how much they knew this guy was essentially managing that fund. Um, other people in the industry had turned down working with this fund because it wasn't savory. Hmm. So uh, there were a lot of issues. And what struck me about that example was this wasn't the Goldman of old. They weren't listening to warning signals, running them up the line, grappling with them, what does it mean, and then making a decision maybe to be long-term greedy rather than short-term greedy right. and to forego a relationship um, that could have a lot of downside risk. Absolutely. So, well, I mean, let's talk about that. Some of the, some of the approaches of how to, how to manage strategic risk, as you were saying, you know, if a company, I know you said a partnership may be a little bit more averse, but then, you know, now we're a shareholders, we got to show value. I mean, what are some strategies folks could do? Well, the first problem with strategic risk is the people don't see it until it's too late. Mm. That's a taxi cab industry. Okay. Yeah. The second problem with strategic risk is that a company sees a threat and starts to jump into new businesses they don't know anything about. Mm. And there are a lot of companies that have tried that in the retail sector particularly that's getting absolutely uh, hit hard uh, by um, all of us buy on the internet now. Right. Um, and so retailers have been jumping one direction, the other direction, frantically without thinking through a coherent strategy. There's a third pattern, and I wonder whether this isn't the Goldman example, but it's conjecture until we finally read the final analysis of what went wrong. 
Um, and that is that if you're shifting to a totally new area, and Goldman is so technology-oriented, it seems like they're making a big move into high-tech finance, where you bank online without um, you know, going to bricks and mortar, they right. call it, in the right. industry. Um, and that they could be paying attention to their new strategic direction and unfortunately neglecting their old core business that is now expected to be not nearly as important for the company. I'm not sure, but that's at least a hypothesis. So Tom, you mentioned uh, you know the whole brick and mortar thing. Obviously, you know we're, the, the banks are moving away from that. Um, so give us a little more insight into this whole high-tech uh, finance world, the fintech, so to speak. Give us, explain that for us. Well, fintech is a dramatic new way of doing business. It's constantly evolving. As a colleague says, it's a brave new world. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, it is the application of technologies that are themselves evolving. Mm. So you see the application of artificial intelligence to scoring borrowers sure. okay. as to whether they're credit worthy or not. And I suspect we can get some more robust scoring of borrowers. Something that's been really bad over the years has been if you have a, a lower income person and they've been renting instead of owning a house, their regular payments don't count the same way that mm. regular mortgage payments count. Right. And something like artificial intelligence can let you reach out to those people. On the other hand, there's some high rollers who shouldn't have been high rollers, and artificial intelligence will be able to watch behavior patterns and perceive uh, ways that those people shouldn't get so much credit. So FinTech is both more sophistication, but also lower costs. Mm -hmm. So banks that have all of these brick and mortar facilities may be in serious trouble. And you can take that, it's not only on the commercial side, there's gonna be serious disruption, but also of course the federal regulators right, have yeah. gotta figure out what are we gonna do with this thing. And the federal regulators are whipsawed because in the end, how they decide about financial technology may well determine the industrial organization of the banking sector. Hmm. How many big banks, middle-sized banks do you want? Or will FinTech simply drive us to the biggest institutions? So you have a huge Uber right. in the rideshare business that's displacing all these little taxi cab drivers who had their medallions. Wow. Um, so there are gonna be all sorts of decisions the government's gotta make. Right, so you're saying the, the, they're kind of struggling with this right now just to figure out how to get ahead of this or even just... You know, keep up with it, yeah. Keep up with it, basically. Yeah. yeah, Another issue that's of real concern is, of course, cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And that's constantly evolving and appears to be getting more and more sophisticated. I'm sure the cyber actors are using artificial intelligence at this point to right. try to figure out weak spots. So recently, Capital One, which is a national bank, um, suffered a breach. We've had other major companies suffering breaches. And what the regulators have to get ahead of is how much can you require hmm. a bank to invest now to protect against the future? And of course, banks are always worried about this quarter's bottom line, and the regulators are fairly diffident 
very often in requiring long-term investment. But this is a classic example of where evolving technologies create strategic risk that do require uh, long-term investment and require it now, not later. That's true, by the way, of the electric industry and all sorts of other industries that are right. facing the same strategic risk. Yeah, well, these are great examples, um, and I, I think you should come back one of these. You know, come back later on when some of these things are all, all the facts come out on all these things happening, the Malaysian thing, and all, I'd love to hear more about that as well. And when, when that when that's kind of fleshed out. Um, now, why don't we uh, just to kind of wrap up here? Why don't we transition? Let's get more specific on the federal side of this. You know, what? How is this all relevant to you know to federal uh, chief risk officers and when they consider the strategic risk for their agencies? Well, the interesting thing is, of course, a federal agency doesn't go bankrupt the way a private company can. And a federal agency isn't as nimble as right. a private company. You've got Congress that's basically dictating and appropriating in very small accounts as to what an agency can or cannot do. Right. Um, what it does is it makes some of the strategic risks potentially more damaging because they take a while to emerge. The classic one that's been bothering me recently is talent management. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine this is true of the bank regulators as well as ordinary agencies, everyday, all sorts of agencies. Right. Um, that with new technologies, we're gonna need a new set of skills for the workforce. And the civil service system doesn't lend itself well to saying, well, you know, you've been great, but after 15 years here, we think we need somebody with new skills mm -hmm. uh, and we have a very limited budget, so would you please retire? Right. <laughs> um, so the, the government is gonna have to do some proactive work to figure out ways to design their HR systems so that they can anticipate bringing on short-term employees, um, you know, maybe five years, uh, something like that, uh, right. in order to um, do the work. And also, you're going to need sophisticated in-house people in right. order to manage contractors. Right. You've got to have in-house people who are capable of keeping up. So in terms of strategic risk, you know, the one is IT, Clearly, the agencies are going to have to keep up with the outside world. And the second one is uh, human resources. Right. And with human resources, I, uh, we did a podcast a few weeks back and, you know, I think with data analytics for ERM, things like that. And what was interesting is a lot of folks think, you know, the, the challenge is it just takes too long to hire people. And that's always kind of the thing you've always heard. And it seems like it's, that might be one issue, but the other one might just be more, like you said, the skill sets, having the right skill sets, retention, hiring the people that want to stay because they're interested in the work. Um, and also just, you know, it, it, things are changing, constantly changing. So, you know, you, you have to have maybe more flexible requirements for job positions too. It seems like they're very strict. It's kind of hard to, to well, get a federal job these days. Exactly, you know? and it may be a requirement to structure so that a certain number of your positions that used to be forever career positions right. might be five-year term positions. And uh, a friend of mine who used to be the um, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense Manpower mm -hmm. sketched out a, a pyramid, and at the top you have your long-term career 
people. Then you have more people that come in that are term employees. And at the bottom, you have contractors who are much more nimble and able to bring the skill sets to right. bear that you need. Right. But you need the people in-house to be able to manage those contractors. Right, absolutely. So, Tom, I really just had one more question. So we're talking about strategic risk at the, the federal level. You know, I mean, I know there's obviously some things that probably all agencies share in common, as you said, IT, talent, that's going to be true across the board. But, um, you know, what advice would you give to a CRO at a federal agency to truly get to the root of some of the things that really should be incorpor- you know, included in their strategic risk for a specific agency, their specific mission? You know, how do they get to the heart of what truly is the biggest risks in these areas? I think one of the important steps will be for the CRO to work with the agency management team to be sure there's a strong policy planning function. Okay. For yeah. example, if you have an agency that makes loans and loan guarantees, mm-hmm. if the private sector is moving to greater and greater sophistication, the government better look at that because otherwise your loan portfolio is going to get cherry-picked and you'll be left with higher and higher Uh, delinquencies and defaults, at least in areas where the private sector and the government serve uh, the same areas. A regulatory agency had better do policy planning in order to see how the, whatever it is, utilities or banks, whatever that they're supervising, in fact are changing over time. Um, Again, a grant-making agency may want to check because technologies are changing the world is changing out there. Are our grants, do they have the same efficacy they had before, or do we need to shift in order to get a greater bang for the buck? Department of Homeland Security, I constantly wonder if they had had a policy planning function that could see that Central America was really having serious internal problems that were gonna drive people away. Couldn't they have planned in advance the surge capacity to be able to take care of an anticipated greater number. Right. One of the big risks at every agency is uh, the development of wait times in critical areas. That's a classic sign that there's risk. Hmm. If you have a policy planning function in place, you can anticipate some of that. And then you can go to the Hill. The Hill is a constraint. OMB is a constraint, but you can go and you can say, this is what we see. We may need to shift resources from some of the traditional areas to what we see coming. And if Congress decides not to, it's on them. (laughs) But the agency's responsibility is to make sure that they give members of Congress the information they need to optimize the agency's mission. Right. So... so I guess I mean the thread throughout this whole thing has really just been you know you got to keep on top of what's coming what you know what's yep. coming up you know what you know really understand your mission what you're trying to do here the the, the reg- if you're a regulator whatever you are what's happening in the world and you know what's going to affect the efficacy of your agency's mission that's the look forward strategy exactly well Tom I really appreciate appreciate you joining us I think we learned a lot and uh, again thanks for joining the program thanks very much Paul. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at Affirm.org. You see all our podcasts. And we're getting closer to the Affirm Summit. We're going to be recording one or two podcasts there as well. It's a great place to find folks for for interviews. So uh, I think that should be fun. We'll be posting those after the conference. 
So until next time, thanks for tuning in. And this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Wrist Chats with a Firm. Thank you.